Okay, uh, last week we made a bit of a stuttering start. Uh, We're just embarking on a very small series between now and Easter in the book of Titus in the New Testament. It would be really great if you could open your Bibles and turn to that. Um, The reason it was a stuttering start is because last week's preacher didn't turn up because of a confusion about the dates. And I'd already started doing some research into Titus and at the last minute we had to wing it. So, and these talks go on the internet and everything, how, how uh, difficult that was. But um, I, I want to divide our time this morning into two. Uh, first of all, I just want to clarify what we probably made quite a stuttering and poor job of last week by re-engaging with you about the background to this letter. And so if you're visiting today, that'll be really helpful, I think, to just get a context for what Paul is doing here with his friend Titus. But uh, secondly, I want us then to spend some time just thinking about the first four verses here. We're just going to deal with the greeting. And uh, as we'll see as we go through, I'll show you a slide later, we'll then spend the next three weeks dealing with the rest of chapter 1, then chapter 2, then chapter 3, and then it'll be Easter. Okay, I've entitled this little series Establishing an Effective Church. And my reason for that title is really verse 5. Um, if you've got your Bible open there, you'll see in verse 5, Paul says to his friend Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Uh, this letter is being written at least 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. But we're told in the book of Acts, if you you make your notes, chapter 2, verse 11, that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached in Jerusalem, only six weeks after the resurrection, that there were people there in Jerusalem from all sorts of places, not quite as far afield as Hull, but there were people there, there's a long list of all the different nationalities who were there in Jerusalem for a special feast. And one of the groups of people were from Crete. So six weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, there were people in Jerusalem who heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost. And I think we can assume that some of those people were converted on that day and then travelled home all the way back to Crete, eventually. And there, over a period of 30 years, churches began to be planted and to grow as people went home and shared their faith. It seems from Paul's language there, when he says, I left you in Crete, it's clear that Paul and Titus have both been in Crete. There's no record of that in the book of Acts. Most commentators think that after the book of Acts, Paul was released from house arrest in Rome and uh, travelled a little. Some people think that he ended up in Spain and then came back to Rome for a second imprisonment. So we we don't know all the details of that because the book of Acts finishes before we find those details out. But um, it seems that Paul had visited Crete with Titus. He's now been called away and he's writing this letter to give Titus directions on how to establish an effective church in this place. It seems that he sent the letter with two other friends, Zenos, a lawyer, and a man called Apollos, who was another co-worker, Christian leader with Paul. And they apparently had to travel through Crete, so it it was appropriate for them to take the letter and deliver it to Titus. And you can read about that towards the end of the letter. We'll come to that. Now, I've been thinking this week 
Um, maybe you can help me with this. What, what do you think would be the worst job in the world? The worst job in the world. I was looking on Google and there were some examples of uh, some pretty horrible jobs. There was a picture of some guys in London whose job it is with shovels to break up the fat that congeals in the sewers. Imagine that as a job. It's a picture of a guy with a spacesuit on sticking his kind of trowel into this congealed fat. What would be the worst job in the world? I suppose uh, some people think, well, the, the, the worst job in the world would be one in which there are impossible, unrealistic targets. Some people do jobs like that, don't they? I remember in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of Egypt, the Israelites had to make bricks for Pharaoh. And he got so cross to them, he said, you can collect your own straw, but I'm not reducing the quota. Take that. Imagine that. Unrealistic targets, that makes a job demoralising, doesn't it? Working in a job where people don't appreciate you. Some people feel that. Difficult working environment, underground London sewers. Unreasonable bosses, well... The reason I mention that is I don't think we can underestimate here the enormous difficulty that Titus faces here. This, in one sense, is, is a, a contender for the worst job in the world. Titus, I want to leave you in Crete. I'm going to go. You stay there. I want you to establish an effective church in this place, this little island in the Mediterranean. Why do I say that it's the worst job in the world? Well, culturally, Crete at this point in history was a byword for the worst sort of behaviour. Sorry, we've, we've missed one slide. We've been talking about that already. There we go. It was, it was a disorientated culture. And we might well think, surely churches will grow where people are good. Are quite moral. But not here in Crete. This place was known for its crime, was known for its pirates, being an island in the Mediterranean. And I pointed out to you the irony of Paul's comment here in verse 12 of chapter 1. Paul doesn't even bother to, to describe their culture. He just lets one of their own prophets do it. And in verse 12, he quotes, well, a prophet, a poet. He was a poet who made predictions. Um, a man called, I don't know how you say his name, Epinomedes. Somebody can help me with that. But he was a poet who lived in the 6th century BC. And this quote is attributed to him. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. He was a Cretan, so this, I said to you last week, this phrase has become a logic problem for people studying philosophy. If all Cretans are liars, and he's a Cretan, how do we know that what he says about them being liars is true? So you can think about that one of your Sunday lunch. But um, let me um, just pick out the three things that he says here. First of all, they were dishonest. Um, liars, that's what he calls his own people. They, they're liars. Another Greek writer, Homer, not Homer Simpson, who's a Greek epic poet, Homer uh, described Crete, I don't know whether he did a travel guide or something, but he said, Crete has a hundred cities and its people are known for being liars. 
That's like, you, you get those travel guides of places to visit. Imagine going on your holidays to Crete. There's a hundred cities there and its people are known for being liars. In, in later Greek culture, the people of Crete were so known for their dishonesty that a new word was invented to describe lying. And apparently, in Greek culture, to cretinize was basically to tell lies. Imagine that. Your culture is so known for being dishonest that if you're a liar, they would just call you a Cretan. Not a Cretan, a Cretan. So. But it's there in the church too, in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul says that there were people in the church who claimed to know God, but by their actions they deny him. In other words, there were people in the church who were liars, hypocrites, stained by the culture. Secondly, Paul says they were evil brutes. I think we can take from this that this culture was aggressively selfish. The description of an evil beast is really describing the fact that they had no scruples in pushing people out of the way to get their own way. They were brutish. Not only were they dishonest, but they weren't known for their sensitivity either. And again, it's true in the church. These themes go all the way through the short letter. Titus chapter 3 and verse 9 to 11 show us that they were argumentative. They were talking about rubbish, irrelevant, trivial, petty things. They were divisive. Paul actually says in the last chapter, warn a divisive person once, and after that, have nothing to do with them. They're animals. They tear each other to pieces. Another Greek writer, Philippus, said, So much, in fact, does love of shameful profit and greed prevail among the Cretans, that among all men, they are the only ones in whose estimation no profit is ever disgraceful. What a thing to say about a culture. You may have heard of the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero. He lived only 50 years before Christ, so not that long before this. And he said, not even talk about Crete, he said, men's moral principles are so divergent that even the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honourable. <laughs> what kind of a culture is that? And uh, last of all, Paul says, well, Epinimides says, these people are just lazy and greedy. Their motto was, I want it all, but I don't want to work for it. I just want to lay back and open my mouth and for someone else to shovel everything that I need into it. Lazy gluttons. Another writer says, the Cretan culture was famous in the ancient world for its sensuality, its covetousness, its dishonesty and its laziness. I don't care what's right. The most important thing is my happiness. Life is about maximum pleasure for minimum cost. No truth, no limits, no responsibility. The reason I use the word disorientate is that this is a culture that has lost its way. It's every man for himself. The whole culture is selfish, self-centered. And the question for Paul and Titus is how, how can you effect change in that sort of environment? Do you need to educate people better? Do you need to pass laws? What do, do you use a carrot or a stick? What do you do with that? 
it's the hardest job in the world on one, in one sense, on one level for Titus, I'm leaving you in Crete I want you to establish an effective church and by the way, this culture is completely disorientated does it ring any bells? <laughs> does it ring any bells? the Bible's diagnosis is both accurate and incisive as Titus goes into a disorientated culture like this one he hasn't got on his mind words like education or legislation or social change. His vision needs to be far bigger, far deeper, far higher than that. The word that is on Paul's mind as he writes this letter to Titus is the word salvation. And that is a big word. And I don't mean that it's got nine letters in it. <laughs> That the, word, the idea of the, the word salvation is an enormous concept. What is required here is not superficial change, but that God intervenes in people's hearts and lives to effect real change. These people need rescuing and saving. They don't need a new kind of help. What they need is a completely new kind of heart. The issues are not external, environmental, economic issues. The issues are internal. They need a radical change. They need to be saved. Let me show you. In, in all the letters, you, you'll know that Paul is a major contributor to the makeup of the New Testament. Many of the letters that we have in the New Testament are written by Paul. And when he does greetings at the start, he always mentions Jesus. And in every other letter... He calls Jesus Lord, except this one. Just look with me, verse 4. To Titus, my true son, and the common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our... He doesn't say Lord like he does in every other letter. He calls Jesus Saviour. It's right there in the front of his mind. In chapter 2 and verse 11... Paul says to Titus, for the grace of God, that is the undeserved kindness of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So the theme of salvation is there in chapter 2. In chapter 3 and verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We'll come back to that theme. So this idea of salvation, apparently in the New Testament, Paul uses the word salvation 12 times and six of them come in Titus. There's only three chapters, two pages in this Bible. Half of the references to salvation come in this letter. It's very much in the forefront of Paul's mind. The job of Titus is hard. But what this culture needs is not a patch up, but radical saving intervention they need salvation now I want to ask you let's just pause there for a moment I've got to ask you this do you recognise that kind of language I need to ask you that many people have the idea that Christianity is some kind of moral, morality kind of thing but that isn't what Christianity is about. Other religions don't mention this word salvation. 
Religion is all about what I do to impress God. Christianity is about God saving us. Do you know that the Bible's diagnosis is that your deepest need is actually the same as theirs? You and I really are just like them in the end. Lost. And we need a saviour who can forgive us and change us. Give us a completely new heart and bring us into a new relationship with God. That's what Paul wants Titus to know and wants him to deliver in Crete with the culture there. So, a, a, a disorientated culture. But there's another problem here that make this job equally hard for Titus just to kind of pile on the pressure on him. Um, what often happens is that the culture begins to affect the church rather than the other way around. Some of you know American writer and preacher Ray Steadman. And he said this, when the church has a problem, it is because the world is invading the church instead of the church invading the world. So Titus here faces not only a disorientated culture, but he's also facing a dysfunctional church. John Benton, sorry, here we go. John Benton, some of us get some uh, Christian newspapers, one of them is called Evangelicals Now. The editor, John Benton, has written an excellent commentary on uh, Titus. And uh, he called it Straightening Out the Self-Centered Church, which is a great title. I wish I thought that first. So we, we used a different one. Uh, the problem for Titus was not just the godless culture, but the fact that the culture had invaded the church. John Benter's commentary was written in the late 90s, so he was kind of looking forward to the millennium, and he was preaching on this letter in his church, and he compares in this book the cultural realities in Crete with the cultural realities that we face, and he suggests, John Benton suggests, that the issue is one of subjectivity. We live in a culture, like the Cretans did, in which what matters is me. My own individual choice, my feelings, my well-being, my happiness. Subjectivity. Uh, how relevant the Bible is. 2,000 years ago this letter was written, and it could have been written to Rotherham today. One of the problems is that the church is often oblivious to what is happening in culture. And, uh, and it's compounded, I think, for us as modern people with the fact that technology is changing so rapidly. People's view of truth and morality changes. And one of the problems is that the church struggles to keep up with what's going on in the culture. John Benton relates a brilliant story by, to, that's told by another writer, Os Guinness. You might have heard of him. <laughs> this is a brilliant illustration. This. So well, I better not bullet it up too much. You might think it's rubbish. But uh, this is a story that happened in the old Soviet Union. There was a carpenter's factory in the old Soviet Union with security guards on the gates. And one day, one of the workers, I think his name was Petrovich or something like that, 
He comes out of the, he, at the end of his shift, he saunters out the gate with a wheelbarrow and a sack. And the guard stops him and says, what are you up to, Petrovich? And he says, oh, it's just wood shavings. Tip it out. So he pulls out, okay, it's wood shavings. Puts it all back in the wheelbarrow and he trundles off. The next day, Petrovich comes out the factory gates again with a wheelbarrow with a sack of wood shavings in it. And the guard scratches his head thinking, you know, what's going on here? And day after day after day, this Petrovich is, is taking this wheelbarrow full of wood shavings out the factory gates. And the guard knows something's going on, but he just can't work out what's going on. It's driving him nuts. So one day, he's so frustrated about this, he grabs hold of Petrovich one day, pins him up a while, he said, I've had enough. I know you're up to something. I can't work out what it is. You tell me what you're doing and I'll let you go. And Petrovich just smiles at him and says, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> I'm stealing wheelbarrows. All the while, he's been wondering what's going on. But it's a brilliant story, but is that not like the church? We guard this and that, and it's important that we do that. The big issues we fight over and we, and we guard and we think, you know, we're contending for the faith. And all the while, our faith is being subverted by things coming in the back door. Culture's changing. As I, people's categories of truth are changing. People's views of tolerance are changing. We live in a relativistic, pluralistic culture. And as we try to contend for the big issues... People aren't listening because they don't understand the language that we're using. And the whole thing's being carried out. It's wheelbarrows that are being stolen. And people in churches are confused by the speed of change and the, and the apparent irrelevance of the church in our modern culture. It's true in Crete, it's true today. The second issue that John Banton points out, and this is a the theme in the whole book of Titus, is that when the culture invades the church and the church is subverted, the gap between what we believe or what we say we believe and how we behave will always be widened. When the culture invades the church, there'll be a, a wide gap between what we say and how we live. Inconsistency in our lives. Now I, I know, and John Benton says it, we'll, we'll never get that gap fully right in this life, this side of heaven. But I think we know often that the gap is much wider than it ought to be. And the, the world subverts the church and invades and pervades the church so that that gap between faith and lifestyle is bigger than it ought to be. So I say again, this is the hardest job in the world. I'm going to leave you in Crete, Titus, so that you can establish an effective church in a disorientated culture where there's great dysfunctionality, you're the man, Titus, to establish an effective church in this place. Wow. Do you like that job? You can see then, hopefully, that the reason I use the word effective is that an effective church is one that resists compromise by being alert to cultural change and by making sure that belief and behaviour match. And when that happens, the church can be relevant and impactful on the surrounding culture, holding out the word of truth 
to a world that so desperately needs it. That's what I mean when I use the word effective. It's, just, it's not just nice alliteration. Establishing an effective church contains those elements. Let me just um, pause here then and give you an overview of where we're going to go and then we're going to get into these first four verses. Um, an effective church, this is a blueprint for Titus. An effective church, first of all, everything about Titus is underpinned by solid theology. And uh, we'll talk about that. It's, it's there in verses 1 to 4 as well. But in chapter 1, an effective church needs strong leadership. That's exactly where Titus goes. In chapter 2, he talks about the need for healthy relationships within the church. And in chapter 3, he talks about the need for exemplary behaviour outside the church, or if you like, engaging with the culture. So I, I think that slide's a good overview of where we're going to go. I know we made a bit of a stuttering start last week, but that's where we are. Solid theology, strong leadership, healthy relationships in church, exemplary behaviour in the world. That's, that's, that's Paul's blueprint for Titus as he tries to establish an effective church in this disorientated culture. I think that's a blueprint for any church. Isn't it great that we have the word of God to help us as we're seeking to do the same things here in this uh, little backwater called Rotherham. We're welcoming people from Hull as well, of course. Now, I want to focus on verses 1 to 4, so we'll, we'll have a gear change. Um, verses 1 to 4, then, are really a summary of, of, of all the themes that are in the book. I, I love the way Paul does this. He, he, this is the greeting, uh, in a way. And I suppose what I want to say, and it kind of relates to what we've been saying, that's why I've laid that background. Confusion in our culture is so common. But it, it is true that I, I also meet many Christians and, and who, who are tired and struggling, mixed up. We might well use the word disorientated. There are, there are far too many Christians who don't know why they believe what they believe. I, I, I wouldn't say that they, they have a sense of confidence or assurance who am I? What am I here for? Why are things happening to me? How should I react to this and that? I, I think you would have to agree with me that that is very common. Uh, not just in our culture, but in the church. People are confused. And yet, contrast that with Paul's greeting here that just oozes confidence, conviction, Stability, authority, he is absolutely crystal clear about who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. There's no sense of flakiness or kind of hesitation. His, his foundations are deep and solid. In fact, I, I was thinking about this with you know, skyscrapers and stuff. If, if you want to build a tall building, you have to have deep foundations. And Paul's towering confidence here is rooted in very deep foundations, as I hope we'll see. 
It isn't that he's cocky or authoritarian. He is a humble and servant-hearted man, but he knows who he is and he knows what he's doing. Now, this is first of all, this here greeting. Some of you might not be familiar with uh, Greek letters from the first century. It's helpful that we have some in the Bible. When we write a letter, we always put, dear so-and-so, and then we write the content, and at the end we put, lots of love, or yours sincerely. So we put, dear, who it's been sent to, and then we say our name at the end. That wasn't the case in the first century in Greece. I think their letter format was more like an email, even though they didn't have the technology, because first of all, the writer would say his name and make a little greeting, and then he would state the recipient, and then he would get into the content. So the first century in Greece was a little bit different to the way we write letters now. So what we've got in these four letters are Paul's greeting. And here Paul summarises his theology. And it's a snapshot in a way of the whole letter. So I, you know I like to think in pictures or, or I don't know, it's just the way my mind works. I don't know if this will confuse you or, or, or help you but this is the way I've seen it. There's four verses here and here's Paul's focus. First of all, he introduced himself as a servant and an apostle. A servant of God. He is a leader, yes, but he is a servant-hearted leader. He's not seeking to lord it over people. His job is to lead well, but ultimately for God's glory and for the benefit of others. He's a servant, and uh, that's important. He also calls himself an apostle. You might be familiar with that word. An apostle was an important person. We don't have apostles now. An apostle is someone who has met the risen Jesus, an eyewitness of the resurrection. And an apostle is a person who has received from Jesus a special command to proclaim the truth of that gospel to a listening world. So Jesus' disciples were apostles. They saw the resurrection. Jesus told them to go and tell people. Paul also, although he wasn't one of the original disciples, also met the risen Jesus. His Damascus Road experience. And Jesus commissioned him very specially to go and preach and proclaim the gospel. So Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he tells us, that everything he does, he does for a reason. I'm a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to God in us. So let me put it like this. I've, I, there's a lot on this slide, so I've had to push it right to the top. Excuse me. God's cho- Paul, Paul is a servant and apostle so that God's chosen people will believe and also so that that knowledge that they come to, the truth that they now know, will transform and change their lives and behaviour. That's what Paul says. I'm a servant and apostle, and that is what I do. Everything I do, everything about my life, my ministry, my travels, my preaching, my writing, is designed to elicit faith in God's chosen people, and for that truth to transform their hearts and lives. 
Can you see that? That's a good place to start. But Paul goes on to say that that is based on something else. And uh, Charlotte read it to us. In verse 2 he says, This is a faith and knowledge that rest on the hope of eternal life. So, it is, it is, his real subject is the hope of eternal life that gives rise to this faith and truth or faith and knowledge that transforms people. The hope of eternal life. But then he goes even deeper than that and says that this eternal life is something that was both promised by God in the past and is now being proclaimed by Paul in the present. I, I, think if, that I, I just like to think in, in that sort of way. If, if it doesn't help you, just ignore it, but hopefully it does. That, that's, hopefully you'll agree with me that this is, that's a good summary of verses 1 to 4. This is my job. I'm doing it for this reason, because of the eternal life that God has both promised in the past that I'm proclaiming to you now. So the central thing in the middle of that is this idea of the hope of eternal life. Let me, um, I, I want to make two big headings and we're going to talk a little uh, under these two headings, but I'll leave that slide. Oh dear. Christianity, then, is not just a religion, is it? As Paul goes to Crete and as he leaves Titus there, he isn't saying to them, give them philosophy. He isn't saying to them, educate them and give them good ideas. He's obviously talking to them and giving them things to think about. Christianity is not just a religion. It is the very life of God. That is what we need. It isn't a list of rules or a moral code, primarily. According to Paul, it is dynamic and powerful because it is the life of God himself coming to his people. One, um, one person says, the Christian gospel does not in the first place offer men an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers them life, the very life of God. What we need is not education. We, we need to be connected to the very life of God. The hope of eternal life is a Bible phrase. When we use the word hope, we say things like, I hope I get this job. I hope it's going to sunshine tomorrow. I hope when I go on holiday, the weather will be good. When we say hope, it means, you know, we wish for something. In the Bible, the word hope is much stronger than that because it relies on God doing the things that he has promised to do. So when the Bible talks about hope, it is a strong and a certain and a sure thing, not a flaky, wishful thinking kind of thing. So Titus here is not seeking to politicise these people. He's wanting to let them to know the very life and power of the Lord God. My second heading, and we'll spend the rest of the time thinking about this, is that I want you to see then that Christianity begins with God. And we'll, let's, we'll just spend the rest of our time thinking about that, because I think that this is part of Paul's sound theology. The first thing I want you to notice is that God is truthful. How relevant that is to a culture that are known for being liars. 
They couldn't tell the truth of it, smacked them in the face, according to Epimedes. And, God, and Paul says here, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. What a contrast with the Cretans. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies. But he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want you to see that this is a big issue. This is really crucial for us to get a hold of. Because the gospel, the message of Christianity, the Bible, it isn't something that I dreamed up. It isn't something that Paul dreamed up. It isn't something that um, bishops and vicars just think, oh, well, this is a good idea. This will keep people down. This is nothing to do with human invention. This is, it begins with God, who is truthful. The gospel isn't based on what I dream up. The foundation is what God himself says. And there are going to be some things that God says that are hard for us. It's also true that God hasn't told us everything. But he has told us enough. And what he's told us is true. Reliable and dependable. And the underlying issue here is that our foundation is deep. Because it, it, it grounds itself in his reliability and truthfulness. We're told that God promises this eternal life. And Paul goes very deep here, doesn't he? God who does not lie promised this eternal life before the beginning of time. I mean, this, this is enormous language. Before the world was even brought into being, God already had his schedule planned. God is not backed into a corner. There is nothing and no one who can tie his hands behind his back in some way. God is totally and utterly in control of his world. This is really important, isn't it? For us to hear and for them to hear. This is a culture that's confused and disorientated. Here's a church that's dysfunctional and mixed up. It is crucial for us to see that there is a big story. History is not random chaos just evolving. But God is truthful. He is the creator. And that is a deep foundation. He promised this eternal life before the world was even brought into being. We'll come back to that. I think it's true to say also, just on the basis of this verse, that God has made sure that this message or this truth is credible and trustworthy. Why do I say that? Well, if, if Jesus had suddenly appeared to Titus, let's say, on the Damas uh, to Paul, let's say, on the Damascus Yard, hey Paul, it's Jesus, you don't know me, but... Uh, I, I'm the son of God and uh, I, I want you to go and tell people that I exist and, uh, and, and call them to faith and repentance. That, that would be, I suppose, one way that God uh, could have chosen to do it, but he didn't choose that way, did he? This is grounded in history. There is a credibility and a trustworthiness in the gospel that is unlike anything else I know. Right back in the Garden of Eden, we're told at the beginning of the Bible that even after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God made the promise that someone would come one day 
who would deal with the problem of evil. Right there, right at the beginning. That's because God knew what was going to happen before it happened. And all the Old Testament history with the Jewish people, it is like God embeds and grounds the coming of Jesus later in all of that previous history. It was hidden to an extent. People couldn't really see it clearly until Jesus came. But it's all there by God's desire. The Old Testament foretells hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene where he would be born, where he would live and work, the kind of things he would do. The details of his life and death are all predicted in the Old Testament history. Isaiah writing six, seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus describes his death in detail in Isaiah 53. God has promised this eternal life from way back and the whole of the Old Testament history establishes that principle And when Jesus then comes on the scene and fulfills all of that detail and the whole thing comes to light, that's exactly what Paul says in verse 3. At his appointed season, he brought his word to light. At just the right time in history, Jesus is born and lives and dies and is raised from the dead. And then these apostles are appointed by Jesus to go and tell them, listen, this has been promised from eternity. And the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And now he's come. God loves you. Jesus died for you. You can trust him. And you can stand on this gospel. How can people know these things unless someone tells them? That's exactly what Paul says. At his appointed season he brought his word to light. How? through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour Paul has a great cosmologically important mission in his mind this is not just philosophy education, this is God intervening in his world and the way he does it is by promising it fulfilling it and then proclaiming it and you can stand on that same foundation God has made sure that it's credible and trustworthy. And he calls us to put our faith in his trustworthiness. So Christianity begins with God. That's a deep foundation, isn't it? You can build a tall building on that. It doesn't depend on me or you. It depends on God. He has done it all from beginning to end. Okay, we've got a few minutes left. I want to get to the hardest part. Christianity begins with God in us too there's another reason here for saying that it all begins with God not just in general but personally Paul says here that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect that's a Bible word and it really means as I've shown on the slide there that God has chosen people to be the recipients of his salvation. Oh no. <laughs> uh, we can hear ourselves reacting calmly to that. God, how unfair. This, uh, the, the, this is exactly though, isn't it, what a subjective, self-centered culture needs to hear. 
Paul makes no apology for it. It is something he takes for granted. He assumes Titus will as well. He doesn't explain it. This is true in all Paul's theology and letters. What this culture needs to hear is that it's not actually all about me. I'm not the centre of the universe. I'd love to be, but I'm not. We love to think that we can do things when we want, how we want, and the most important thing in our modern culture, as in theirs, the most sacred thing is individual choice. In terms of religion, we have this idea, don't we, that somehow we can choose to follow God and please him with our moral efforts. This verse is like a juggernaut that just smashes through all of that subjectivity and says Christianity doesn't begin with you choosing God. It begins with him choosing you. Is that hard? This thing runs all through the Bible and we've only got you know, a few minutes left. We could spend like the rest of the afternoon talking about this. But let me take you to two statements of Jesus because that's one of the best places to go. If you, if you take your notes, John chapter 15 verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. They did choose Jesus. What Jesus is saying is that their choice of him was predated by his specific choice of them. You didn't choose me. That's not what's going on here, guys. I've had my eye on you since before the world was even created. You have been on my heart, in my mind. I've chosen you. There's another verse in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. At the end of that chapter, many, many people turned back and stopped following Jesus because that was too hard. And in a very poignant passage, Jesus turns to his own dear disciples and says, do you want to go as well? And they say, I don't think they understood it all, but they said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We're staying with you. They didn't understand it all, but they knew who was giving them life. A lot of Christians try to explain these difficult concepts away by suggesting that God chooses people based on him knowing that they would respond to him. But when you stop and think about that, it doesn't make sense really. Jesus would have said, I chose you because I could tell you were really nice and would actually choose me. It actually makes those verses mean the opposite of what they actually mean. Because actually Jesus is only choosing them because they chose him. That isn't what Jesus means or says. And the Bible backs this up. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Paul says right to Timothy that God gave us his grace before the foundation of the world. What about that for a dynamite verse? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Listen. This is a Bible truth. And it is the most humbling truth 
in, the, in all the Bible. It is hard. But it is what a subjective, self-centered culture needs to hear. It isn't all about me. The, the universe doesn't revolve around me and my needs. It actually is all about God. We have far too high a view of ourselves and far too low a view of God. But I want to say also, it's not just a humbling truth, it is a very encouraging truth. What do I mean by that? Right, let me just see if I can do this with you. Let, let, let's imagine for a moment that we, we have to decide who's going to be saved. And it's up to us, it's our choice. And we've got to meet tomorrow. Let's meet at church at 9 o'clock tomorrow and we'll, we'll metaphorically gather the whole of humanity and it's our job to choose. How would we do that? Uh, I think, um, just imagine this with me. Let's imagine that we could have a really massive skyscraper that would fit all the population of the world in it. And we've got to put people on the right floor according to some criteria of choice maybe we would decide to put all the criminals at the bottom in the basement, in the car park all the worst people the dregs of society all at the bottom and as you go up the skyscraper floor by floor the morality of people gets better and better and better and better and somewhere maybe about floor 20 we draw a line and we say all the people above will choose all of them to be saved and all the ones below the line no hope for them that would be one way to do it, wouldn't it? We'd just draw a line. But we, we think, well, that, that means that these people below line have no hope at all of being saved. So how would you divide it up? Maybe you could do it on the basis of wealth. That, that, we'd react to that, wouldn't we? That, that's not fair. Maybe we'd do it on the basis of race. The, the, the reason I use that illustration is that wherever you draw that horizontal line... What you're, after, what you're actually saying is that all the people below the line have no hope of being saved. But you know what God does? He doesn't draw a horizontal line. He makes a vertical one that goes all the way through humanity. There is no criteria that you can use where you could say to someone else, you're on the wrong side of the line. Because God can save anyone. Can I say that again? God can save anyone. If it depends on something in us, the moment we say that, we exclude people. But if it's God's choice, anyone can be saved. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're rich, poor, tall, short, a big sinner, a little sinner, a man, a woman, God can save anyone. And I'm glad that that choice isn't vested in us, but in him. But this doctrine is an encouraging one because it means that anyone can be saved. I want to say secondly that this truth gives great hope to preachers. Why does Paul say, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. This is the hardest job in the world for Titus, but you know what underpins him? 
the fact that God can save anyone. Humanly speaking, this culture was past redemption, but God is bigger than that. In fact, there was a time when Paul was in Corinth earlier than this. The work was hard. He was under great pressure. That was a dysfunctional church as well. He was persecuted. He needed encouragement. And God appears to him. What does God say to him? Hey, Paul, you're a great speaker. People are sure to respond to you, mate. Paul, these people are not so bad. If you just keep on plugging away, they'll eventually see sense. No. The encouragement that God gives to Paul, and you can read it in the book of Acts, God says to him, Paul, I have many people in this city. And your preaching will be successful because I can save anyone. It isn't down to your eloquence, although you need to do a good job. It isn't down to their goodness. It is down to my sovereign work in people's hearts. I can save anyone, Paul. That means that a preacher can preach with confidence. Confidence. Not in himself, but in God. God can save anyone. He can save you. Thirdly, I want to say to you, this is an encouragement to you this morning if you do trust Jesus. You've believed in Jesus who died for your sins. What does that mean? It means that God has chosen you. It means that before you were a twinkle in anyone's eyes, let alone your mother's eye, he had set his love on you. That means that you are his and he will never let you go. It is not your feeble grip on him that makes you secure, but his divine grip of you that makes you secure. This doctrine of election in the Bible is humbling because there's nothing you can do to make God love you. But it is hugely encouraging because there's nothing you can do to make him stop. These are cosmic truths. God is the beginning of salvation. Preaching is not just a good idea, but it is the power of God to save people. Is this the hardest job in the world or the best? I'm leaving you in Crete, Titus, so that you can straighten out what was left unfinished. I want you to establish an effective church. I want you to do it by having solid foundations that are deep, that go way back into eternity. How will we be an effective church in this disorientated culture? We'll do it because it begins with God. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want to urge you and encourage you to put your faith in Jesus, our Saviour. And if you are a Christian this morning, I want you to remember that God has chosen you and will keep you and to encourage you to learn to build on those foundations so that you won't be confused and swaying about, but that you'll be grounded in the gospel that God has given to us, promised in eternity, proclaimed by his apostles, a gospel that we can stand on.